Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by Brian Jasnoff, investigative reporter. Uh, less than two weeks ago, uh, we heard from representatives of the city of San Antonio and the San Antonio Police Officers Association that they had tentatively reached an agreement uh, on a new collective bargaining deal, and uh, which is um, this is something that anybody who remembers the the, the, the process the last time around, which. Uh, ran from 2014 to 2016. It was very contentious um, and uh, it seems to have been less so this time and helping us to understand, you know, what the, what happened and, and what the, is in the new deal uh, is Express News reporter, Emily Eaton, who is, who's done some great work on the, the bargaining process and, um, and wrote recently about, um, about what the deal looks like. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Gilbert. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned, you know, when, in in twenty fourteen, uh, the twenty fourteen and twenty sixteen process. I mean, that was about two years, two and a half years of, of bargaining, and and uh, it got very vitriolic. There was uh, at one point the the city uh, filed lawsuit against both the police union and the the, the fire union over what was then a ten year um, evergreen clause in the, in the in the contracts. It it seemed, at least from the outside, and you have a much better idea than than I would. It seemed. Uh, more civil and more constructive. I mean, is that is that how it appeared to you as you covered it? Yes, very much so. You know, the last round of negotiations, like you said, were really characterized by this level of vitriol. Um, you know, at one point, it, it was sort of led by then city manager Cheryl Scully, and her big focus at that point was reining in healthcare premiums and the cost um, for the city and. She, um, you know, was very passionate about this and like, this was her big focus and the, the union members in the union really saw this as attack on, on their livelihood. And they, at one point, you know, launched attack ads against her and it was very contentious. And whereas this time we didn't see any of that level of, you know, we didn't see lawsuits, we didn't see attack ads, but even beyond that, when you would watch the negotiations meetings, um, they were very civil. I mean, there would be points when the city lawyers and the union lawyers or union leaders would get a little heated um, or they'd say, oh, no, you're not characterizing my opinion correctly. Um, and they would sort of go back and forth. You could tell that they were a little... Um, upset, but it was always remained very civil. And, um, and I would say most of the meetings were beyond that, you know, pleasant, like the, after the, after the deal was announced, when they came out and they said, we have a deal and they started signing the, the paperwork. I mean, everyone was like shaking hands and um, a few were giving hugs and it was very, very pleasant. So definitely a very different type of negotiations this time around. Emily, I'm curious, how, how much is, how much do you uh, credit do you give to the new uh, leadership at the police union for the change in tone there? I think that has a lot to do with it. I think, you know, the history between Mike Kelly, who is the former pre uh, union uh, leader and, and Cheryl Scully, former city manager was just really contentious. And, um, and, and Helly was just known for being outspoken. I mean, he was the leader who helped sort of lead the union into um, putting up those billboards when police chief William McManus um, let go of those migrants from a tractor trailer down at the Walmart after they were, um, after they were discovered. And that led to like this big um, 
contention between the the police chief and the and the union with the union saying that he shouldn't have done that. And so he was just a much more outspoken leader and willing to sort of call out city leaders or the police chief on things like this. Whereas mm-hmm. um, the new leader, um, Danny Diaz, he's uh, he's apparently he's sort of spoken his, of himself as a friend of McManus. Um, he just seems to have a different leadership style. So I think that really played a lot into it. You know, the, um, the new, uh, agreement includes, uh, uh, wage increases of three and a half percent, uh, for both, uh, 2023 and 2024 and then 4% for 2025 and 2026. But it, it seemed that the real, the real focus of the negotiations this time, um, as you pointed out in the last time around, it was, it was about, um, reining in, uh, you know, benefits costs this time, it seemed much more about, about reform issues of police reform. What were the, 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 the big things that the, that the city wanted and uh, what were they able to get? Yeah. So this actually ties into a lot of what Brian has written about. And I have occasionally written about, you know, since the um, the murder of George Floyd at the hands of a police officer in Minneapolis, um, there's been this huge focus on unions and their power. And specifically in San Antonio, how officers who are terminated by the police chief get reinstated, either because the police chief doesn't want to go through this long, drawn-out appeals process or because they win through an arbitrator, an um, independent arbitrator who's selected by the city and the union, um, you know, takes a look at the contract and says uh, the city or the police chief had no right to fire this officer. So um, Brian did this great investigative piece. I think it was maybe last year or the year before, Brian? Uh, it was, it was uh, 2020, yeah. Yeah, about how like two-thirds of officers uh, who appealed their firings get reinstated. And... Um, so that was a big focus. They wanted to limit the authority of the arbitrator so that the arbitrator couldn't reinstate a police officer um, as frequently under you know the different rules and regulations. So that was one big thing. Um, another big thing, often these police officers are reinstated because the police chief fires them uh, 180 days after 180 days of the incident occurring. And per the previous contract, that wasn't allowed. It had to be within 180 days or six months. And so that was another big focus for them, changing the so-called 180-day rule so that that the police chief can discipline an officer within 180 days of finding out about an incident. Um, so that was another big thing that got changed. So, so what exactly was was changed in terms of the ar- arbitrator's authority in reinstating officers? There's a couple of different things. First of all, it used to be that the city had very limited options after an arbitrator made a decision to appeal to a district court. And often, a, a police officer had like a lot of different options. They could appeal to a district court, but the city couldn't. There was um, sort of just the guidelines were very limited so that um, they have more leeway where they can appeal to a district court. But beyond that, um, if the city proves that the misconduct occurred and the officer's conduct is in some way detrimental to effective law enforcement or the needs of the department, 
or fails to meet community expectations, the arbitrator cannot reinstate the officer. So basically, as long as the city proves that this officer isn't good for the police force um, or that the community would not be pleased with the police officer being on the force, the arbitrator has no authority to reinstate them. Isn't that up to the arbitrator's discretion, though, like whether or not uh, it's, you know, it's been proven? Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll sort of have to see how this actually plays out if the union passes this this um, and the city council passes this contract, how this will actually look. But they do provide some definitions in the in the contract that shows how the city has to like prove so that it's not quite the arbitrator's discretion. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Arbitrary. Yeah. <laughs> <The> arbitration. <laughs> Emily, in looking at your the reporting that you did uh, as as this process played out, it, it seemed to me that that the language that that language uh, and how much discretion the the arbitrator would have that seemed to be a if there was a, a, a big sticking point in this uh, bargaining process that seemed to be it. There they were there was a lot of discussion about what what language. Um, would be used. Um, and it was very, it got very, very specific. Is that right? Yes. And, you know, at one point they, um, they, at one point they, they talked about defining like major misconduct and minor misconduct and having that be the sort of definition that the, that would like dictate whether or not the arbitrator could bring someone back, but they ended up actually tossing that language aside completely. So you're right. I mean, it was like one, one week they would have, you know, two, three pages of legalese talking about how they would (laughs) limit the arbitrator's authority. And then they would, the union would say, no, that's not going to work for us. They would toss that out and they would come up with a completely different route um, until they finally found one that both sides agreed on. You know, in 2021, we saw, um, and this was, in, in, you know, in the wake of the, the protests over the the George Floyd uh, killing, we saw a, an organization in San Antonio called Fix SAPD get a proposition on the ballot, which would have um, essentially taken uh, collective bargaining power away from the San Antonio Police Officers Association. That proposition lost by a narrow margin. But I wonder if what your sense is about whether it played a role in the negotiations were the, because I think the, the, the police union during the, um, the election process last year, they were making the case that um, not only that this would be damaging to the, to the, to the union to lose collective bargaining, but that, that, that reform could be achieved without that kind of step. Um, do you, do you think that the fact that we had that election and this issue played out and it was a very close election that it altered in some way um, the bargaining process. Yeah, I think it did. Um, when I spoke to political experts right after Prop B failed, they all said that this was going to put major pressure on the union to negotiate, that they realized that the community wanted discipline and that there was a very good chance discipline for officers accused of misconduct at least and that there was a very good chance if they didn't prioritize these reforms in the contract that a group like fix sapd could come back and just put it back on the ballot and it would actually win the next time i mean it was 
it really was an incredible feat. It was a pretty much a grassroots effort on behalf of Fix SAPD. Granted, they did have some big money support, but the people who were running this had never done something like this before. And um, so I think the union could probably see the writing on the wall and say, look, we have to do this or else they could just come back in two years and, and we could completely lose the right to negotiate. I'm curious, like the dynamic, as, as you mentioned in, earlier in the podcast, the dynamic between Mike Helley and Cheryl Scully was not, not ideal. Um, how much of a role did Eric Walsh play in making this a more, more smooth process? Yeah, I've sort of been curious about that myself because Eric actually was one of the main negotiators last time around. So really it was him and I mean, while Cheryl played a huge role in shaping what the city wanted, it was really Eric who did the day-to-day negotiations with the union Mm -hmm. and probably really, you know, clashed with them. Um, I wasn't around at that time, but I, I imagine given what I've read, that was the case. So I'm sort of curious how active a role he played. Uh, you know, he was never at the negotiations. It was all um, primarily Maria Villa Gomez, um, who was the deputy city manager, and she oversees police and fire. Um, basically, she's in Eric's old role, and um, and so it was all her. But at the very when they announced the negotiations, she's. Uh, we wanted to get, you know, briefed on basically, well, what's everything in this 140 page document? And she's like, hold on, I have to go, I have to go brief Eric Walsh, and then I'll be back. Mm-hmm. So that made me sort of think that they had a, a pretty good working relationship through this whole thing. You know, uh, when we, we, we had that last round of, of, of bargaining, I mean, so much of the, um, of what we heard from the city was that we were on a, an unsustainable fiscal path that the the benefits packages that the police and fire unions had this was just that it was it was going to create all kinds of uh, problems for the city um, and and make it impossible for the city to be able to you know pay for the services other services that it, that it needed to pay for um, and I wonder if because uh, they were the city was able to get some some changes uh, in, in benefits last time around um, are we now at a point where city leaders l- look at what the public safety unions uh, are getting when it comes to pay and benefits? And, and do they now see this as like a, a sustainable path and, and kind of a, 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 a sort of fiscally stable situation? They say that's the case, but there are some people who question whether or not that's true. So one of the big pushes from some police reform groups, including Act 4SA, which was previously uh, the group, that they sort of changed their name and many of the same key players that pushed for Proposition B, they, one of their big criticisms is that they wanted to see the Evergreen Clause reduced even more. Um, as you mentioned before, it was 10 years during the last contract. It's eight years now, mm-hmm. um, but they thought it should be even shorter. And they really sort of criticized the city for not prioritizing that, um, and they and they and they saw the um, pay raises as sort of like a double edged sword. I mean, you need to obviously pay police officers for this very dangerous job that they do, and often under you know they 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 don't always get to uh, take leave when they want to take leave. I mean, you have to have minimum staffing. There's a lot of sacrifices that police officers make. 
But at the same time, it's a it's a big increase. I mean, it's 15% over four years. Mm-hmm. And right. um, and they said, how can the city sustain this? Because the city says that it wants to keep its costs under 66% for public safety. And, and uh, but the city pushed back and said, no, we can do it. Like we've looked at our numbers and, and this is possible with the pay increases that are um, suggested right now. And, you know, the, the, the pre- healthcare premiums largely stayed the same. Um, they said, no, this is, this is possible. So I guess we'll see. You mentioned the 66% kind of, that's kind of the, 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 the sort of cap that, that the city representatives have sort of imposed to, you know, that's that we don't want to go above that as far as the percentage of general, the general fund to be spent on public safety. Where, where are we now? Do you know, um, what, what per, roughly what percentage we're at? We're, I think just out under 66%. Um, that was a big, um, talking point during the budget season last year when after, I mean, after George Floyd, again, you know, police reform activists, aside from the contract, wanted to see changes in the city budget. They wanted to see a lot of money that's currently directed towards police, really directed to um, social services like homelessness prevention and job training and things like that. And so at that time, um, it was around just under 66%. And I think it that was maintained. They largely didn't make too many changes in the budget. So I think it stayed largely the same. Historically, there's been a sense that when the uh, police union uh, arrives at a deal with the city, that the, the firefighters union would get almost kind of what people would consider like a copycat deal. It, was, it would be very, very similar. Um, that didn't really happen the last time. I think you had firefighters um, being critical of the the agreement that the police union reached and kind of kind of, they kind of took their own path on this. Do you have any sense about what what we're like likely to see uh, this time around? Whether the um, whether the the, the the relatively smooth process that we saw with the police union whether whether that'll that'll play out also with the the firefighters or whether they'll they will uh, do something different. That's a good question. You know, you're not seeing the change in leadership on the fire side that you did on the police side um, before this round of negotiations. But at the same time, it does seem like the two negotiations largely feed off of each other. Because one thing that came in that came up in this round of police negotiations was, um, I can't remember the exact specifics, but there was something in the disciplinary process you know how I mentioned before where they were, you know, they're throwing around all of this um, legal uh, documents about well, what are we going to, how are we going to limit the arbitrator's authority? Um, in the end, I believe they largely copied what the fire union had. Um, I'd have to go back and double check that, but, but they, they would bring up like, oh, well, this is what the fire department has. Um, and so I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, we'll start to see, you know, a similar focus on the fire side. I mean, it granted it's a little bit different in the disciplinary process, but Absolutely. I wouldn't That's what be I surprised thinking. if they continue to feed off of each other. Yeah. Well, Emily, thank you so much for, uh, for taking time out and talking with us and kind of walking us through this, uh, this bargaining process. I, I guess the last thing I would ask you is, I mean, we, my understanding is the, the union is expected to, to vote uh, uh, sometime next month and, and the, uh, city council will will vote later on. Uh, is there? Do you think it's it's just almost a, a certainty that uh, the union will will uh, approve the deal? 
I would think so. Um, when we asked um, one of the head negotiators for the union about this, he said, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to say because the, you know, every police officer, just like every employee has a different focus. You know, they may be really concerned about leave or they may be really concerned about pay raises or the disciplinary process. And so he said, you know, what we tried to do with this contract was create something that has a little something for everyone. So you're not going to agree with this package in its entirety, but as long as you feel like a majority of the contract serving your needs, that it's a, you know, a good vote for you and your family. And so I think if we think about it that way, I mean, if that, if that truly, if that is true, if, if the police union really did create, help create this package that Mm -hmm. is at least appealing to police officers in some regard, then I would think yes. Um, and I think it'll be interesting on the city council side too. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think it has a pretty good chance of passing, but I imagine we'll see some, um, some pushback from sort of some of the more progressive folks like Terry Castillo and, um, uh, Jalen McKee Rodriguez. Um, so that'll be really interesting too. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us and, uh, For everyone listening in, we hope you're doing well. Uh, Take care and we'll be back next week. Bye.